Beautiful. Well, that's um, my first page of introduction taken care of. That was great. We, <laughs> just sniping it page by page. We absolutely, as Rachel just said, we are far more interested in giving an opportunity, a space, an environment, a context for you to encounter God than we are to tell you about him. Hopefully, we can give you some information while you're here as well. Hopefully, we can bless, encourage, and challenge you. But that's why we do the space thing in worship, by the way. You might have noticed those awkward silences, and I know they can be awkward. This is about providing an unhyped opportunity to meet God one-on-one. I did another page. (laughs) Come Holy Spirit is our topic for this series of eight evening services, but it's also the cry of our hearts. And it's as close to a liturgy as the vineyard movement gets. Tonight's talk, I've been given the title of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, so we will be looking at the threefold unitedness who is God, or the triunity of God, or Trinity, as the teaching is better known. Of course, one sermon is nowhere near enough time to begin to unpack a full teaching on the Trinity. And so, as Rachel said, this is not intended as a lecture, nor anything approaching a full theology. But for the purposes of our teaching on the Holy Spirit for the next eight weeks, let's set up the right backdrop. Let's ground our doctrine in the right big picture of what God is like in order to allow us than to zoom in on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to look at one passage of the Bible this evening that I think will help us to open up this teaching a little bit. Now, there are many passages in the Bible which I think uh, point to, more or less obviously, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the oneness of God, including the opening words of the first letter from Peter, chapter 1, which says... Starting at verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That's the opener. Also, there's Paul's sign-off in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And of course, we have Jesus' instructions in Matthew 28. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But tonight, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching to his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 26. So those of you who hold a Bible or an electronic Bible device, we will be in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 26. They will come up on the screen, but I'm going to dance about a little bit. So if you want it in front of you, that'll be a good thing. I'm not going to dance. You'll be glad to hear. Verse 15. If you love me, this is Jesus speaking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And the next verse, please. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. 
Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Amen. In this passage, Jesus does more than just name the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He teaches his disciples a little about how we will meet, how we will encounter each person of the Godhead. So let's start at verse 15. And of course, we don't have enough time to stop and take note of this wonderfully instructive challenge that if we love Jesus, we will obey his commandments for another time, maybe. In that relationship we have with Jesus, Jesus will ask the Father, and the Father will give us another helper. Some translations use the word advocate, who will be with us forever. So right here in verse 16, we have Jesus speaking about his Father and about another person who we're introduced to as an advocate, helper. There are three people in this one sentence. And what we know about these people is Jesus, well, we have the rest of the Gospels to get to know the character of Jesus, but even from verses 15 and 16, we can see that he wants a relationship with us. He's giving us a way to have that. He wants the nature of our love to include obeying what he commands us. So he clearly is holding himself in some status there. And he's giving. He wants to help us. And... He is clearly in a close enough relationship with the Father that Jesus can promise us that the Father will do as Jesus requests to send this helper. So that's what we know about Jesus from these two verses. From the Father, again, from the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the Bible, uh, we can say, ah, yes, this sounds like the God that we know already. You know, this is the God of Israel. Yeah, we know him from the Old Testament, season one. It was great. This Father, in these two verses, he is the one that Jesus will ask to do things. So Jesus has a relationship with him, a relationship where Jesus can make requests. Now, a request isn't a command, but still, to be bold enough to make a request of Father God and be confident in the outcome, well, that's no little thing either. Secondly, about the Father, we can see that the Father has the ability to give or send this person called the advocate or helper. Three, so on to the advocate. In verse 16, we're introduced to him as someone who's given by the Father, someone who's promised to be with us forever, so not a normal person then, not a human, whoever this figure is, 
And even the choice of name that Jesus uses to describe is very telling. An advocate is a legal representative, an advisor to us, a representative, a representative that of us before a judge. They know the law, they're able to steer us right, they're able to plead our case on our behalf in a way that pleases the court and a helper. Well, I don't think I need to explain that one. Fairly descriptive in Jesus' introduction. Verse 17 tells us a bit more about this helper. This spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So added to what we know from the last two verses about this advocate helper, we have, he's a spirit. Well, that helps us with the question of how he can be with us forever. He abides with you and will be in you. Jesus' promise to his people is that this spirit who he will send forever will live with us in us. Which are some pretty exciting promises, if you ask me. And they sound a lot like Jeremiah 31, verse 33, and the promise that the Lord made there. Speaking about his people, God said, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And just in case that wasn't clear enough, I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. It actually it gets even better as you carry on, but we'll start there for now. This helper advocate that Jesus is telling us about is promised to do what God promised to do. And this promise that Jesus is making to his followers is connected to, it's part of God's promise to be their God and for them to be his people. So, this spirit of truth sent by God, if we were just reading the words in John, what might we think about him? Perhaps a helpful angel? A dedicated spirit given the job of carrying God near us? Does that work? Or is he, in fact, God himself? It looks like he is. If he's going to help God move into our hearts, we're not just talking about a vehicle. This is not a shopping cart for the Father. This is the very presence of God within us. So, the Father's sending him, which means he's not the same as the Father. And Jesus here is talking about the Father and the Spirit of truth, so neither of them are the same as Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus promises to his disciples that, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. What does Jesus mean here when he says to his mates, I am coming to you? Well, he could either be talking about his resurrection from the dead and meeting his disciples after that, or he could be talking about him coming to his disciples through his Holy Spirit. And you know, commentators argue pretty persuasively for both of those options. It's Jesus speaking, so it makes sense that he says he's coming to people. Maybe it's him himself bodily. But this is in the context of a teaching about the Holy Spirit. And so, actually, it makes sense 
that he's here referring to the Holy Spirit when he says he'll come to them. Even when he says, I. And when he promises that the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, does he mean that when he's risen from the dead, he was only going to show himself to the disciples? Just shh. Or is he again talking about the way that he will be with his people through the spirit of truth, who the world will not be able to see? Again, you could read it both ways. And actually, the fact that you could read that both ways is getting into the murk of the Trinity, the murky problem of finding out who's talking. When God says, I will do something, which I does he mean? I, God, I, the Father, I, the Spirit, I, Jesus, and to what extent does it matter? Well, I think it kind of does. God has revealed to us that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has met us as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to speak accurately about those experiences, especially if we then have to try and separate those experiences from the encounters with the angels God has sent that people have also had, Daniel 10, Mary, well, let's not even get started on those. If we're going to try and disentangle these things, it matters that we say, where we can say, Jesus calmed that storm. The Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and gave them the power to speak unknown languages. Or, in terms of his promises, the Holy Spirit will come and live with you forever. Or, Jesus is going to come back and judge creation. I think it matters. And yet it also matters that Father, Son, and Spirit are one God. So when the Holy Spirit speaks, I can say, as Romans, 8 chapter, Romans chapter 8 verse 9 does, that the Spirit of Christ is in me, speaking and leading me. Brilliant. And have you ever heard someone pray a prayer that skips between the members of the Trinity that must drive heaven's telephone operators mad? <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for Jesus. And yeah, we thank you, Jesus, that the Father, you sent the Spirit. Uh, Spirit, send us the Spirit. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Right? To whom may I connect your call? <laughs> Honestly, I don't think it bothers God. Only maybe a tiny bit in the amount that it confuses other humans, but for no other reason. I think heaven's operators are more than up for disentangling those prayers and correcting them all to the Father in the name of the Son, delivered in the Spirit, to be blessed and answered by God in his triune glory anyway. God seems to be more than happy for us to have the problem of him co-identifying the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Scripture and in our experience because although we have to scratch our heads about that problem, it at least means we've grasped that he is one, even if we can't work out how that can be. If you've got a tickly throat, by the way, there's some water at the back. Help yourselves, by the way. Um, except for Brooke. <laughs> Let's get back to John. Verse 20 of our passage says, 
a really exciting promise. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So on that day, that day that we live because Jesus lives, on that day that we see Jesus, even when the world can no longer see Jesus, when we have those encounters with God, where we know his presence and his encounter, even that the world can't have access to, we will know, we will take that as proof that Jesus is in the Father. That we are in Jesus. And that Jesus is in us. We will know when we encounter God, and that experience correlates with and affirms and backs up and proves what he said in his word, that he is right. That Jesus was the real deal. That his statements about himself being in his Father were true because we meet God the Father just as Jesus promised. Ah, he was right. And he's trustworthy. And everything he said about him being from the Father, about him being one with God, that's John 10 verse 30, were true. God will back up Jesus' claims by us encountering Jesus, seeing Jesus, even when the world can't. And more than that, we are in Jesus. Our unity with him will be proven to us, known by us, by us encountering Jesus and being alive in him. What does it mean for Jesus to be in us? Well, the one that fed 5,000 people from a packed lunch, that brought the dead back to life and handed them to their families, the one who taught with authority, searing truth, and heaven's power is to be found in us? That's a mind-blowing thing. How are we going to know this? How will Jesus fulfill that promise? Well, in verse 21, he goes on to explain. Oh, we can skip that. Thank you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Thank you, Lord, for the disciples asking questions I want the answer to. Also, Judas, the good one, you know. <laughs> Jesus answers the, so how is this going to work, question, with a verse that I think is the best explanation of the Trinity that I've come across in Scripture. Verse 23. Those who love Jesus will keep his word, and the Father will love them, and Jesus and the Father will come to them and make their home with that person. How will the God the Son and God the Father come to us and make their home with us, in us? Only through God the Holy Spirit. And to whom will they come? To those who love Jesus. A love that looks like obedience to him. Recognizing that Jesus is God and obeying him as such opens up a relationship for us to God the Father through God the Holy Spirit. 
That's the Trinity. Here it is. John 14, verse 23. The Trinity as we know him. And in verse 24, there's another warning, a footnote to underscore the importance of the relationship that we have with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. There's a, there's a real, our relationship with Jesus having to be serious streak running through this, if you spotted it. Jesus then also underlines the relationship between Jesus and the Father. The word you hear is not mine, he says, but it's from the Father who sent me. God speaks in unity with himself. What the Son says is what the Father says. And in verses 25 and 26, we read, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit will say what Jesus says, and Jesus is saying what the Father says, God speaks consistently with himself, you might not be surprised to hear. And he speaks in such a way that if we ask, but who said that? Was it the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit? We are probably going to struggle for an answer. It was the Spirit of Christ. So here we have it. The people of God who'd had it drummed into them throughout all history that there is one God, Yahweh, Adonai, the Lord, and there are to be no other gods except that God, none ever to be placed alongside him, are introduced to Jesus the Messiah, who says that he and the Father are one. Let's go on to the next slide, which I think is lovely. John 10, verse 30. Jesus, to the Pharisees, says, I and the Father are one. Well, the Jews picked up stones again to throw him. Uh, throw to stone him, that one. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? With or without sarcasm. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They got it. If we skip over that and misread that verse, they didn't. They absolutely knew what Jesus was claiming. Yahweh, the one God, yeah, I'm one with him. And I talk to him, Father, but I'm one with him. The hearers of the message know exactly what Jesus is claiming. And he speaks not only of his being one with the Father, but of Jesus and the Father coming to live in us through this other person he's introduced to us called the Advocate, Helper, Spirit of Truth, Holy Spirit. Here's the problem. One God, he hasn't changed. Three persons who all claim to be God are all different, and still maintain the claim of one God. And we have to somehow reconcile these claims, these facts, to make sense of who God is. The church throughout history has tried to do just this, and would meet up as grand councils, where the leaders of churches have gathered together to discuss these problems, come up with statements to help you and I, friends, to be able to state our beliefs as clearly as possible. One of those that particularly seeks to describe the Trinity is the Athanasian Creed, if you're a note-taker. Athanasian Creed. A very helpful set of statements that are to keep us right in our talking about God. Give us some guidelines to hold on to, and we'll just look at the first bit of it. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding 
blur, confuse the persons, nor dividing, breaking apart, the essence, the godness. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. We won't dig into this, but it's great. Why, why on earth are we not spending all our time in this if this is a talk on the Trinity? I'll tell you at the end. And so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods but one God, it says further down. If you're interested, do keep that up, we're going to stay there. If you're interested, I recommend going and looking up the Athanasian Creed, give it a slow, thoughtful read over. But I want to show a couple of models. People have put together different diagrams and models to try and help poor souls like you and I wrap our heads around the Trinity. Here's a really helpful diagram. These three persons are not the same as each other. The Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, is not the Father. The persons are not the same as each other, but each of them is God. Well, there it is. Except, except, where is God in this diagram? Does this diagram, however helpful, suggest, even imply, that God is a fourth thing? Or if not a fourth thing, then a behind thing? If we can click on. Does that somehow imply there is a godness that is separate from and outside the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, if it implies that, nope, we can't have it. Okay, so not this diagram. We have to be careful to show that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are God, and we can't say they are parts of God, as if God is somehow further behind. So let's have another go. Someone has suggested the Trinity is like an egg. The Father is like the shell, the Son is like the yolk, and the Holy Spirit is like the egg whites. Here's an, an analogy to help us understand the Trinity. Isn't that good? Mm. No, because, <laughs> you see, where is God in this picture? Is the Holy Spirit God? Well, no, because all of the egg was God. Is the Son God? Well, no, because what we've done is broken the Trinity down into parts. We're showing the threeness of God well in this analogy, but we're somehow missing out on the oneness that the three members of the Trinity are in God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. We can't just have, we're two parts of the same thing. I and the Father are one. So this is a heresy called partialism, because it breaks it into parts. Learn something tonight. There you go. You can go home now. Meeting Jesus is fully meeting God. Meeting the Holy Spirit is fully meeting God. Being given a steering wheel is not being given a whole calf. A model of the Trinity that talks about Father, Son, and Spirit as parts of God cannot help us. Okay, a different approach. What about how we focus on how the one person can be different things to different people? Okay, so a woman can be a daughter and a wife and a mother all at the same time. Isn't that good? See? One. Great. Yeah, just like the God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're not dividing the essence of God. No partialism here. We're showing the oneness of God. But alas. This picture has gone too far the other way because this suggests that there is 
one God who somehow changes roles depending on how he relates to us. Now it's time to put on the Holy Spirit mask. Now it's time to put on the Son mask. Now it's time to go into Father mode. This heresy is called modalism, and if this description were accurate, then who is Jesus talking to when he prays to the Father? There have to be three persons in the Trinity, as well as oneness. There are loads of models that people have come up with to try and make the Trinity understandable, but every single one that I have seen does not work because they are us trying to shoehorn into an analogy truths about God that he has revealed to us. We're trying to make sense of what the God behind the universe, who created creation, actually, has told us about himself, and we just don't have the tools to understand it. So, what are we left with then? Creeds of statements that we know to be true, even though we don't know how to hold them together, beyond trusting him that they do hold together. But we are left with more than that. We know these statements to be true because we know the God who gave them to us. We are left with a relationship with the God who reveals himself to us. The revelation of the Father, the incredible breaking into human history of the Son and bringing alive all of this truth, and the present-day encounter of the Holy Spirit who testifies to the Father and the Son and the oneness of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friends, we know things we don't understand because we have met and found to be trustworthy the one who told us. Can I tell you that again? We know things that we don't understand because we have met and we have found to be trustworthy the one who told us. There's one final model I want to offer you. And with it, an important note I want to make here, too. All of these models are trying to describe how the persons of the Trinity of God relate to himself. And if we're being honest, we just don't know that. We know what we're told, and we know how, in God's grace to us, each of the persons of the Trinity is involved in God relating to us. But if we ask, how did the God who always existed eternally relate amongst himself before creation existed, well, of course, we're just not going to be able to know the answer to that. What we do know is how Jesus, God the Son, relates to us, and about how God the Holy Spirit relates to us. And through the Son and the Holy Spirit, God's revelation of himself to us, through them, well, then we know how the Father relates to us. We have the next slide, please. The model of the Trinity only works if we recognize that we're in the picture and that we have a subjective, limited viewpoint, but that that viewpoint includes God actively reaching out to us. God the Father sent God the Son to become human and to join humanity and God in one amazing, unique person in history. Jesus revealed the Father to us far more fully than any messages from God by the prophets or the law had done before. And in Jesus dying for us and being raised to new life, he brings us back into a restored relationship with the Father. And how? By God the Holy Spirit coming to live in us, to reveal to us God the Father and the Son. Can we click on to the next one? Thank you. And to, to nudge, to push, to pull, and to drag us, because he loves us, into a closer and closer relationship 
with and an extra close likeness of Jesus. He brings us into the Trinity by his grace. Don't mishear me and say that we're being made into God. We're being brought into the tightest relationship that ever, ever existed. This is the model of the Trinity that we know. Or as Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, put it, the Father sends the twin arms of the Son and the Spirit to draw us into his embrace. God never sat us down and said, right kids, three and one, listen up, the Father is not the Son, because that's not the important bit for us to know. Our focus is meant to be on the restored relationship with God. And in his kindness to us, he has revealed to us God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to restore our relationship with the Father and with God in all his fullness. That is why tonight we looked at a passage where Jesus tells about how he's going to meet us and minister to us. That is why we've grounded this whole talk about who the Trinity is in what Jesus has said to us, the mission he's on, the love he has for us, and how he's taking us home. We could have read the creed. It's good. But it's not as good as what God himself is saying to us, the way he says it, why he says it. As C.S. Lewis puts it, if we can click on, that is how theology started. People already knew about God in a vague way. Then came a man who claimed to be God, and yet he was not the sort of man you could dismiss as a lunatic. He made them believe him. They met him again after they'd seen him killed, and then, after they'd been formed into a little society or community, they found God somehow inside them as well, directing them, making them able to do things they could not do before. And when they worked it all out, they found they had arrived at the Christian definition of the three-personal God. This definition is not something we've made up. Theology is, in a sense, experimental knowledge. It's far more empirical than a priori, if you're doing it right. He also says, and some of you may be feeling, you may ask, if we cannot imagine a three-personal being, what is the point of talking about him? Well, there isn't any good talking about him. The main thing, the thing that matters, is being actually drawn into that three-personal life. And that may begin at any time. Tonight, if you like. And this is where we come into land. Our God is one being. A community of love. 1 John 4, 7. The Trinity is that our one God is three persons and that the three persons of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are each and all God. And God has revealed to us that he loves us. That those of us who want a relationship with Jesus will be united to God the Father through the moving into us of God the Holy Spirit. The one God will do this through his three persons working together in loving unity in you. This is why we cry, come Holy Spirit. We are inviting 
warmly welcoming, submitting to, confessing our need for God and his kindness to fill us, lead us, transform us deeply, and meet us in our experience. We are asking the fullness of God to move amongst us as he has revealed his will to do so, and reaching out in relationship to the God who has shown his delight to spend time with his children. Come, Holy Spirit, is a cry of relationship, of intimacy, of delight, and of need. It is an invitation from the bottom of our hearts and the highest thoughts of our minds. It is our recognition that we are creatures of a loving and relational creator. It's our recognition and our delight that God, who has revealed himself to be love, to be an eternal community of oneness, has invited us into that mysterious community, seated us within Christ in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father through the Holy Spirit. And come, Holy Spirit, is our recognition that this world is not filled with the presence of God. That the hurt and pain in this world is real. That the spiritual battle is real. And that therefore our earnest prayer is that God would increase his presence and his lordship, his kingdom, if you like, here amongst us. Come, Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to stand. And at this point, I would normally invite Al to come up. He's presumptuous. Come on, mate. Come stand here. It's nice. You stand with me. This is, this is good, isn't it? Yeah. Great. <laughs> that silence and that waiting on God thing we were talking about, we're going to do that just for a minute just now. Um, I love to worship, but let's take the opportunity in the silence of our hearts to invite the God who loves us to meet us again. Again, we're not trying to hype anything. We're trying to invite the God who I believe really wants to meet you to come and in simplicity and in truth meet you.